0: Hello and welcome to the Mike Figures podcast. I believe it's podcast number nine. And I'm usually joined by my friend Ali Aguilar. In fact, we already recorded this podcast and I was editing it and I suddenly, to my horror, heard a high-pitched tone which indicated that the batteries on the mixer were in fact going down, but I couldn't hear it at the time we were recording. So it's a shame because I think it's an interesting podcast. And so I'm going to re-record the beginning part of the podcast and then Ali will cut in and and join us towards the end. So um, I want to say that I've really enjoyed doing the podcast and I hope you've enjoyed listening to them and I'd welcome any feedback or comments either way. I was a bit reluctant to do it at first and I'm I'm very grateful to Ali for sitting in with me because he's a fountain of knowledge and he has a great memory and he he knows a lot about film and people's names, the stuff that I always forget. And so, uh, thanks Ali. Today's podcast is really about the history of sound for me, my history of sound and how important sound has always been to me. As a musician, obviously, but also, funnily enough, as a filmmaker, I would go as far as to say I think sound is the most important thing in cinema. And my initial attraction towards cinema was nothing to do with the visuals. It was to do with the sound of cinema. Even as a kid, I think I was so overawed to sit in such a large space and hear this sound um, all around me and the kind of... I didn't realize it at the time, but the fact that the use of microphones to create the kind of intimacy of the close-up, so in a close-up you're not just looking at the camera up close, you're listening to the microphone up close, and that gives the edge to cinema, that makes cinema what it is. For example, it it achieves something that you could never begin to achieve in a theatrical production. From a very early age, I was fascinated by sound, and I can't remember how old I was, maybe about 17 or something, I got hold of a tape recorder, a Grundig tape recorder. It was mono, had a very basic microphone, Um, but I started making recordings on that. And one of the first recordings I made was in my parents' house, this beautiful farmhouse in the Cheviot Hills of Northumberland. Briefly, my father was obsessed with jazz. He was an amateur jazz pianist. And his hero was a genius black musician called Teddy Wilson, who revolutionized piano playing in the 1930s and 1940s, and was also, Billie Holiday's, in the early days, a main accompanist. He also played with Benny Goodman, very famous. So my dad, Larry, he worshipped Teddy Wilson. Now, Teddy Wilson, in the late 60s, did a tour of England Not a great time for jazz music because of the Beatles and the trad jazz boom was over. And they were supposed to do a concert, Teddy Wilson and his band, in Newcastle. The concert was cancelled. I don't know the absolute details, but somehow my father suggested to another local jazz musician that they should have the concert anyway in our house. Now, it was quite a big farmhouse, but it wasn't that big. And it was in the middle of nowhere, literally. But we had a Teddy Wilson concert in our house. We had a white grand piano which my father had bought for five pounds from the local school teacher who was moving to a smaller house. We hired a tractor. I think it was more expensive for the tractor trailer to bring the piano the seven miles to our house, but we had this white grand piano and Teddy Wilson played it. And I recorded that concert and I still have that. And it's quite something. To London, I started recording various bands that I was in again with this very basic mono tape recorder. That tape recorder had a built in automatic recording device, there were no level controls. So, if you played a very loud noise, it's almost like the iris of the microphone closed down, and then if you played very quietly, the gain level opened right up. So, you've got these surges if there'd been a, a, a big bang on the drum, it would close, and so on. So you've got this kind of very specific sound. I've recorded the People Band, which is the kind of free jazz ensemble I've been playing with since I was 18. Uh, uh, The first recordings were on this tape recorder. When I joined the People Show, which is this brilliant, unique British performance art group, they already had a guy called Dodd, who was kind of a brilliant sound artist. And he had a much more sophisticated tape recorder called a Vortexingen, uh, which was a stereo machine, and I was super impressed by that. And also he was cutting up the tape, and I was again fascinated by the possibilities of what you could actually do with sound recording. Quite simply, all you needed was a little metal block and some basically tape and a, an eraser and a China pencil to mark the tape. And so I joined the People Show, and very soon after I joined, there was a huge internal fight, basically, going on. I'm quite volatile, you know, times, because we the very creative, and creativity is volatile. And so Dodd left the People Show, and he moved up north. He went to Yorkshire, and he bought a little house there. And suddenly, I was in there. I was the musician-slash-actor. And there was a void because they'd started using sound recordings as a kind of basis for the performance art. Very cinematic, I might add. And so I jumped in. And I think we had some kind of Arts Council grant. And I think I inherited a Revox tape recorder and we bought another one. And I got into sound. And very, very quickly, I became obsessed. At the time, I lived in North London in Barnet, and in New Barnet High Street, there was an electrical goods shop that sold Hoovers. And and suddenly, they had this portable, reel to reel, battery operated tape recorder. It was called a Ewer. Beautiful machine. It was the budget version of, of the Nagra. And it was for sale, plus two microphones. Looking back, I have to imagine that maybe these were stolen goods because it was absolutely out of left field for the other kind of goods they were selling in the shop. But I bought it. I don't know, I scraped together. It wasn't so expensive, but it was a new machine. And so I suddenly had this portability and these two microphones, and I started carrying them everywhere with me, making recordings in the field, as they say, on the tube, on the New York subway, at Niagara Falls, uh, in Spain, by the ocean, um, the sound of my own children as they literally were born, and so on. I still have all of these tapes, and over the last year or so, I've been transferring them from analog into digital, and they're they're amazing. One of the tapes I found was a recording of my father in the local pub in the middle of nowhere, in the Cheviot Hills. On a Sunday afternoon, I took my tape recorder and two microphones, and I discreetly put it on a table, didn't tell anybody, and I let it run for like 20 minutes. And I heard that the other day, and it was 100 times more powerful hearing my father speaking, and my mum, and my sisters, and all the local guys in the pub in there. Very beautiful, thick, north Tyne, Geordie accents, far more evocative than any photograph could ever be. So I, I love sound, I am obsessed with sound. I started to buy more equipment, and one of the things I bought was a thing called a pistol mic by AKG. This is the equivalent of a zoom lens on a camera. This, you point this, and it just records what you're pointing at. Very powerful. Obviously great for people recording nature and birds and things like that. And I started to carry that with me. And the first story I'm going to tell involves this AKG pistol mic. At that time, you know, I had a young family. And we used to go on the cheap airlines to to Alicante, basically because of Benidorm. Um, But we had a a little house in a place called Altea. And we had a friend there called Pamela who had a a farmhouse in the middle of nowhere, literally in the middle of nowhere, no houses anywhere near. And it was wonderful because that's the kind of pure nature silence that you get. Anyway, we were there, a bunch of people drinking, smoking dope, uh, not me, because um, I, didn't, I didn't do that stuff, for reasons which I could go into in another podcast. Um, but everybody was getting pretty stoned and jolly, and I wasn't. I was kind of bored, it was about one o'clock in the morning in the middle of nowhere, and I suddenly thought, wow, I'm just going to go for a walk, and with my AKG pistol microphone and my portable UA tape recorder... I bet there's some really cool nature sounds out there at two o'clock in the morning. So I began walking away from the house and I could hear the sound of laughter, fire crackling as it receded and people having a jolly, jolly time. And then I was far enough away suddenly to be away from all human sounds. And so I had headphones on, of course. And so I turned my tape recorder on and I stretched my arm out like a weapon because this thing had a pistol grip and no idea what I was pointing at I could hear little rustly noises and bits of wind and, and I started just rotating ending up doing 360 degrees very slowly as I pointed my my pistol mic As I rotated I suddenly became aware of a different frequency a kind of tsch, much higher frequency and then suddenly I heard aus die werden, weil sie aus dem clearly the German language coming out of a bush in the middle of nowhere in Spain it, would be accurate to say I almost crapped myself. I mean I was like and it's not like I'd suddenly put a torch in you know but I you know, the question obviously in my mind was what were the Germans doing in a bush in the mountains in Spain? And of course the answer was much simpler than that, which is if you are wearing headphones and you're pointing a microphone and you have cables and they're going through electrical circuits, at a certain point you become a radio receiver. So what I picked up on, just in that particular angle, was the German equivalent of the Deutsche World Service, I guess, something like that. But, you know, it was a scary, freaky moment. Strange moment with sound. The second moment was just as strange, in fact, more so. Moving forward a few years, this was before I started making films, I had left the People Show, I had formed my own theatre company, um, the Mike Figures Company, I did three very complex performance art pieces that involved film, sound, live music, pre-recorded music, opera, so on and so forth, and so I I was pretty evolved now with the sound. I had recently seen Francis Ford Coppola's amazing film, The Conversation, which if you haven't seen it, I recommend that you do see it, starring Gene Hackman. And Hackman plays a sound genius, but he's a hacker. He's a man employed by various people to spy with audio on other people. And the opening sequence is pure genius. It's probably my favorite opening sequence of any film, because it shows him trying to track a couple who are walking across Union Square, and they're talking to each other, and people keep getting in the way. There's a jazz band, there's a juggler, there's a performance artist, and extraneous noises. And what's brilliant about the opening sequence is not just visually it's beautiful, but the sound mix on that opening sequence is beyond beautiful. And I think Walter Murch was responsible for that, and I interviewed Walter at some length and and quizzed him about how he did all this and he said that actually they had to make up a lot of stuff because they were so ahead of the technology at the time the technology didn't actually exist, and they had to kind of they had to invent their own and one of the things they do in this in this film and in this sequence is they basically use a highly evolved graphic equalizer, which is a device that will take out various bands of the sound until you isolate the one sound band, if you think of it as a kind of you know, multi-layered thing, the high frequencies, the middle frequencies, low frequencies, to isolate this voice so you get the clarity. So it was all about finding out what they actually said. So that was hugely responsible for my whole way of thinking about sound at that point. So I'm at that time working with um, a very famous British actress called Sarah Miles. Sarah Miles had been in The Servant and various other, you know, very iconic British films. And she was kind of a Kate Moss ahead of her time in the sense that she was controversial. She was young. She was an alternative she wasn't a classically trained actress as such, but she worked with Laurence Olivier. She was married to a very famous screenwriter and then divorced. And she had, a, let's say, a tabloid life. And I met her much later on where she was training to be a singer. She was working with a wonderful opera singer called Bettina Yonick, and who I was working with. And she introduced me to Sarah Miles. I have to say, I was a huge fan. I always thought she was incredibly beautiful. I was kind of fascinated by her as a character and um, I was delighted to meet her. We got on very, very well. It turns out she was writing a kind of musical and she was preparing a TV show. She liked me. Long story short, we ended up working together and I was helping her with her music and writing the music for some of her words and so on. She and Bettina Yonick fell out very, very quickly and Bettina said, look, actually, she's... She's a very strange woman. I think she's a witch. She's clairvoyant. She has special powers. She famously drank, I think, a glass of her own urine every day. I mean, that's not unusual, by the way, and some people think it's very healthy. She was an eccentric, still continues to be an eccentric, I'm sure, and rather a special, unique person. The more I got to know her, she started telling me about her life in Hollywood, and one of the very traumatic things that had happened to her was that I think she had had an affair with a journalist, American journalist, and he became a little bit obsessed with her, became a bit of a stalker. She was making a film with Burt Reynolds called The Man Who Loved Cat Dancing. And the journalist came to visit her, really wanted them to be together again. I think Sarah, for her it was all over. There was an event. He died. His skull was, I think, fractured. And there was an inquiry. There was a murder inquiry, in fact. Um, The production was halted. Top Hollywood lawyers turned up. And eventually, I think, an accidental death verdict was recorded. Now, as it happens, I know exactly what did happen, but I can't say. All I can say is that Sarah started to tell me that she was in communication with the dead man and I said in what way she said oh he talks to me you know we often communicate in fact I have a tape of us talking to each other my interest was piqued remember I was fresh from the conversation I'd love to hear that tape it was a cassette now the cassette had been recorded in Los Angeles where Sarah was living Clearly, she was either drunk or stoned, and I couldn't, she was slurring her words, et cetera, et cetera. And she played it to me, and I could hear like her mumbling, mumbling something, and then another voice, but I wasn't convinced. So I smugly said... I had bought a graphic equalizer. As, thank you, Francis Ford Coppola, I went out and bought a graphic equalizer... I was definitely ahead of the curve. I was the only person I knew who owned a graphic equalizer at that point. I said, can I borrow the tape for the weekend and let me analyze it? She said, sure. She gave me the cassette tape. So I went home and I had a studio where I lived. And I had, my setup was I had two Revoxes, I had my portable Ewer. I also had a four-track Tiac. I had a beautiful analog studio and a mixer, and most importantly, the graphic equalizer. So I knew what I had to do, so I took the cassette and I made a copy immediately onto reel-to-reel quarter-inch tape, so I never had to use the cassette again. I then ran my quarter-inch copy, now my master, through the graphic equalizer onto a second recorder and made a second recording. And what I started to do was I started to knock out the low frequencies and isolate the frequencies where these two voices existed. It's not a very difficult thing to do. You just play with the the faders until you kind of go, oh, now I have complete clarity on her voice. And I made a copy. And then I ran that copy through again and made another copy. It became clear to me very, very quickly that this wasn't another voice. It actually was Sarah's voice. It was in exactly the same frequency. And the more I isolated it, the more obvious it became that she... I'm not saying that she was trying to fool anyone. I think she probably was a little bit possessed at that moment. Um, I didn't doubt what Bettina Yonick said. But she clearly was um, extraordinary. She did have... Powers of perception that were not normal. Anyway, I thought, okay, uh, I'll just have to tell her, look, I, it's it's just you. Um, and then I thought, I'm going to run it through one more time, and this time I'm going to try some higher frequencies. So I knocked out middle and low, and I started pushing the high frequencies. These would be the frequencies where you hear something like little clicky sibilant noises and. Those kind of things. And I ran it through and I started to hear something, a kind of sort of noise. I thought, wow, that's interesting. I didn't hear that before. Ran it through again, swapped the tapes, made another copy. And now this time I really pushed just the high frequencies and took everything else out. Again, I'm wearing the headphones. It's probably about 11 o'clock at night. I'm in my studio, it's dark outside, and I run it through. In the sub frequencies, so I can hear this kind of. Which would be Sarah's voice. But I'm hearing that stuff much clearer. And then suddenly I hear the following Sarah. Those headphones came off like, what the fuck? And uh, I literally, my hair was standing on end. I was completely freaked out, to the extent that it took me a long time to play it back. Did I really hear that? Did I really hear that? I still have the tape. Anyway, this was Friday night. I couldn't wait until Monday when we were going to meet again. So I go in on Monday morning, and Sarah's very impatient. She said, so, so, did you find it? And I went, look, Sarah, I analyzed it, and my opinion is that is your voice, that's not him. You are somehow channeling. Maybe you heard his voice and you channeled it, I don't know. And then smugly I said, but check this out, and I played it back. She listened, and at first she was kind of intrigued, and then as soon as she heard the voice, she went, oh, fuck, not that stupid bitch. And I went, please explain. She said, it's this woman. She came to stay with me in Los Angeles. She was a little bit bipolar. She was off her face most of the time. She was always talking about killing herself. And she was boring the shit out of everybody. And I think eventually I or somebody else said to her, look, you know, if you're going to kill yourself, get on with it. If not, shut the fuck up and move on. And um, she killed herself. And now I can't get rid of her. She interrupts every interesting conversation I'm trying to have. She won't go away. She's a pest. And in a nutshell, I'm not interested. And I was sort of like, but I just found this for I'm. uh, uh." It was funny. I mean, that's in a way sums up Sarah Miles. Um, Yeah. uh, quite impressive in a way, not to be impressed by what I'd done. I mean, I was impressed, and I still am, but uh, that's my second sound story.